because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Last week, I shared with you the speech that was supposed to be a debate with Michael Mann. It was a speech I gave at Lafayette College that Mann was supposed to come and debate me, but he pulled out for reasons you can learn if you listen to last week's Power Hour. This week, I've got the Q&A from that event. This is one of my favorite Q&As I've ever done. I got some really inquisitive students there. Some had some really interesting critical questions. I really enjoyed it, and I think you'll enjoy it well. So see if you do, and I'll be back on the other side. I have a number of questions, but I'll begin with a few, and then I'll move on. So I guess, I don't know where to start. I think you make a couple of points that I agree with. However, especially the second and the third point, I feel like that's where it just doesn't kind of add up. I think there's a lot of like fundamental assumptions as well in like your own arguments that I, I feel like there's a lot of fundamental assumptions in your own arguments as well that you're not tackling from the beginning, which is what makes me like struggle to like fully agree with you throughout the way. Like I think you have an assumption that progress is good. And I think that is something that can be contentious from the very get-go, which then kind of questions a lot of your second point where you're advocating for like human progress and like leading to a better world mm -hmm. and stuff. It's all also fundamentally like based on this assumption that like a capitalist world is the, the world that a lot of people will want. And I don't think that's always necessarily the case, especially if you look at, well, I'll get into that in a second. And then I think your argument is also based on this idea of like energy always leading to this. It's like a linear, like we're always going to be getting better. But I guess my one of my questions would be like, couldn't we have made the argument that potentially, yes, there have been all these benefits that you described, but that's sort of like an exponential curve. And we're going to start seeing like, as you showed at the very end, like diminishing returns. Uh -huh. um, so I think those are kind of things to consider. And I guess in terms of, I'll start with my first question. So on your first point, like the second fact that you give is that despite the existence of many forms of energy production, you talk about like how fossil fuels are the energy of choice for over 80% of the time. But I have a couple questions here. First is this idea of choice. I feel like this choice is imposed, especially on a lot of countries in the global south who are being forced to develop under like the Euro-American vision of what modernity and progress is. So I'd even question the use of the word choice. And then you were trying to describe like why it is that this happens. And then we were looking at how like the sun and wind and stuff aren't necessarily free. But I feel like we also didn't talk about just like the structural and ideological imposition of fossil fuels, the way that to an extent, like there is not as much investment in other technologies. There's not as much, as not as much research going into other technologies because certain countries and specifically like certain corporations are really benefiting from the investment in fossil fuels. And I think that's something that has to sort of like be acknowledged when you are making your argument. And then really the only other, I guess, to begin point that I would question is on your second argument where you talk about like low cost energy being fundamental to human flourishing. I feel like you, you look at the, you look at human flourishing in your second argument, but then, and when you're looking at the benefits, but you don't look at human flourishing when you look at the consequences and you're not like, what happens to conflict and the rise of conflict? What happens to the rapes that are occurring at like sites of extraction of this oil? Like what happens to the actual insecurity that's occurring at the points of extraction? I feel like this human flourishing kind of false, like it's, you're using it to your advantage, but then you're also not using it to counter some of your points. So that was a lot, I'll start here, but yeah. Yeah, awesome. Well, it's probably better than what Michael Mann would have.
come up with. Um, so may, I just want to make sure I cover all these. But let's, let's start off with the issue of, of the assumption, like where I'm starting. And it is, you're absolutely right that I am assuming that human progress is, is good. But then you also said that I'm assuming that a capitalist world is good, which I do actually think that properly defined capitalism. But I didn't say that. I want to make clear what I said and what I didn't and why. So what I, I said is my focus is on human flourishing. So, and I explained sort of why I like that concept. And that means human beings living to their highest potential. And there are different elements of that. And there's a question of what political system uh, leads to that and what different political consequences have. But the focus that I really had is that human flourishing requires production. That, that's the core idea. That requires production. And then production requires machine power. Because and the point is nature does not give us anywhere near the environment we need to flourish. So we need to, we need to be extremely productive if we're going to flourish. Whether you think, uh, and this is, by the way, something that the original socialists and communists agreed with. They, this is a little bit different today. But like the original socialists and communists said production is crucial. Socialism will be much better at production. Now, historically, I think they were refuted. And there's this whole interesting fact that when the socialist countries failed at production, then they started claiming production is a very important quote, not, not impacting nature is important. But so I want to be clear on, so I, my core point is human flourishing, human beings living to their highest potential. I wasn't addressing every aspect of that, but I was addressing it requires production. And I'll stress three elements of th human flourishing that I think are particularly related. I think three elements of human flourishing, in my view, are one is how much time you have on Earth, just how much time you have, period. Two is how much control you have over your time. So what options, like, like not just what options, but like how much are you doing what you really want to do with your life versus doing something that you just is imposed on you, so to speak, because you just need to make it to the next day. And then the third related to control is how many options do you have? Like what kind of fulfilling options do you have? And I believe that a world where we're very productive, I mean, I know you have way more time, you have way more control of your time, and you have way more potentially fulfilling options. That doesn't mean that everyone is going to use it properly, that there aren't problems with that. But I believe production is crucial, and machine power is crucial to production, and low-cost energy is crucial to machine power. So that's what I want to say about that. Um, and then progress is good in that progress, but progress in human flourishing. So human beings having more productive ability, uh, more time, more control of their time, more opportunities, more options for what to do with their time. Uh, so then we talk about energy. The value of energy is there diminishing returns? Well, in a sense, yes. I mean, there's diminishing returns on everything. It's a slight oversimplification, but in general, like there's diminishing returns on money. Like you know, you have more money to a certain point. You spend the early money on things that are more valuable to you than the later money. It's not 100% true because if you think in terms of happiness, it might be okay. Well, the money that you spent just to make it to the next day. Like you could still be miserable, but then there's money you might spend to say get an education and do your pursue your dreams, and then that actually generated a lot more happiness than the early one. So, but there is there is diminishing returns, but that something having diminishing returns doesn't mean that it's still not valuable. And my point about energy in the world today is so I think in the U.S. there's a lot of stuff we could do with more energy, but that wasn't my main focus. My focus is six billion people in the world use less than 40% the energy that we do. So I'm viewing it as we're in an energy-starved world. Most people do not have anywhere near the miracle of machine power that we enjoy. So there's just, it's, it's, there can be diminishing returns, 
but that doesn't change the fact that the world needs way more energy or that fossil fuels uh, can do it better. Now, you mentioned a bunch of what I would consider in the realm of side effects, or we could also consider them abuses. So you talk about like at different extraction sites, people's rights being violated. And let's just say in general, some claims about that are true, some are not, but let's deal with the ones that are true. Like that is, and it's certainly true in, in countries where the government is owning it. The government owns the resource and manages the resource, or often the government will farm it out to a company that's somewhat unscrupulous. That is all bad and should be changed. But I, the reason I didn't focus on that is because that's not really an argument relevant to whether we should be using more fossil fuels. It's an argument that's relevant to how we should be using more fossil fuels. So with abuse, I talk about in the book the abuse use fallacy. The fact that something can be abused is not an evidence is not evidence that it shouldn't be used. It should just be not uh, abused. And so the conflict stuff falls into that uh, category. So absolutely, we do need to view those as anti-human flourishing, but they're not inherent in fossil fuels. They're just uh, abuses. And then the other side effects I mentioned more briefly, like air pollution, you can't totally get rid of, although you can mostly get rid of it even with coal, with natural gas, there's very little. But so those are real things, but they're inextricably tied to people having energy. Once nuclear becomes cost effective in two generations, then you can legitimately say, yeah, we should, for anything you can do nuclear cheaper or the same price as fossil fuels, you shouldn't use fossil fuels unless they can make their emissions disappear. But we're not in that world. Uh, OK, I think that, uh, that covered that. Very good questions. Thank you. I don't know if we'll have time, but I love that. So everyone else can ask a question with that level of complexity. But feel free to leave if you. Well, I was going to say, so you asked a lot of questions, and I think they're good. I think they're probably representative of what a lot of people watching might think. Like, so did he, first of all, answer everything you asked? And second, the answers he did give, do you want to say anything in response to what he said? Like, are you now convinced that progress is good? Or do you still disagree? Well, wait, wait a second. Let me just say something before that, is that I don't expect when I give a presentation, let alone an answer, my expectation is not instant agreement. My expectation is just to make my view clear to think about later. Like a lot of the, most of the things I've become convinced of, somebody said them to me and I thought at the time like, no, that's wrong. Oh, but wait, there's a point. And then like I think about it and then I would read other stuff. And so my, like I don't like, I just I don't I don't hold myself to the standard of instant persuasion, and I think often when people are instantly persuaded, it's often a bad thing. But I, I am interested if you think there's some major thing I didn't address, and anything else you you want to say. Your response about the abuse point, I think that's that's a good response, and I agree that like how that should change. I think where I'm still unconvinced is like kind of with your arguments in terms of just carbon like more carbon emissions having been like a net positive almost I just I think I just feel like you're making logical leaps like that don't make sense for example okay but for example your argument that for example like climate change um climate change induced no climate change deaths have reduced over time I feel like that's specifically if you're looking at like a, a drought or um yeah, like a drought, for example, leading to a debt. But what happens, for example, to like 
a lot of famine that is now being worsened by effects of climate change because in the 20th century um, you had over 70 million people die from famine. So I, I, I do think there's other things that have, it's, it's like climate change to X to death, but because you're only looking at climate change to death, like we're missing a lot of these X's that are, are actually being caused by climate change. And the only other point I'd make to one of your responses about talking how like more, um, like having more energy is going to lead to better life for everyone. The first issue is like you have to tackle the issue of distribution and that's premised on the fact that everyone's even going to have access to that energy because there are I think political motivations to still keep people in poverty especially for countries in sort of the global north and and so I, I'd question that and you talk about how like all these people are going to die if we don't invest more in fossil fuels but let's look at it the other way if we keep investing in fossil fuels who's actually like suffering the consequences of investing more in fossil fuels, it's those same people that you're now advocating are gonna get the benefits. So I think there's just like an inherent sort of like contradiction with that argument. Because the people that are now suffering from it are the ones, I, I, I just don't understand how that argument works. Okay, great, I'm glad you asked. And, and then uh, there was one thing you addressed that I didn't address, so I just was reminded of that too. So I get th three things. Um, so the climate deaths, I think that's, I think it's plausible, that's a plausible assumption that I wasn't covering things like uh, famine, but the, actually the reason why those deaths are so high in the 20s and 30s is because of drought and drought-related uh, famine. So that the climate disaster deaths do cover those numbers. So what, what's happening is those things have gone way, way down, particularly drought and famine. And it's not true that they've, what's that? Famine has not gone down. Well, it definitely has gone down. I mean, in terms of. You've seen some of the worst famines we've ever seen and they're, they're man-made. Like, I don't see how you could advocate that. Like, I don't see how you can say famine's gone down. Well, Somalia, so, Yemen, South Sudan, famine has not gone down. Okay, so the reason I think it's gone down is if you look at the metrics of calories per person, distrib distribution of calories around the world and life expectancy, and death rate, like all of these things are improving. So you can't have, I mean, it depends what you mean by famine, but less pe fewer people are, like lower percentage of the world is dying from starvation uh, all the time. So, th I mean, that's my view on that. We can, okay. we can yeah. discuss the data, but I think the data is, my view is the data is uh, unequivocal on that. In terms of, you could say there are other dimensions of the climate issue that are important that one could ask about. So there's the issue of, um, I mean, interestingly, one thing that's not accounted for well in the climate data is cold-related deaths, because most cold-related deaths are not considered extreme, but there's actually huge, most studies, like even mainstream studies on this show, just the debt, like one of the major ones concluded cold-related deaths uh, outnumber heat-related deaths by a factor of 17. Even in a place like India or Madrid, cold-related deaths are more attributed than heat-related deaths. I mean, more deaths are attributed to cold than heat. Um, what you could argue is damage. So for instance, like wildfires, right? In California, we're having these terrible wildfires. There's all this destruction. You can say, oh, fossil fuels helped us move all these people away, right? So they didn't die. But can we really live in the world, a world with bigger and bigger wildfires and storms? And so that's a legitimate kind of point. Um, and I just didn't address that for time. And so what you find is that if you look at, uh, I'll talk about wildfires in a second, but with, with the phenomena in general, what you, with these different damages like storms and floods, what you find is that the damages are going up, but they're not going up adjusted for inflation. So they're not going up like percentage-wise of people's income. 
less and less damage is being done by these storms and floods and wildfires. Now, the question is, here's another question for someone who wants a book or a t-shirt. Why is damage, what's one reason that damage is going up that would have nothing related to do with climate? That cli the damage, why would damage go up even if climate stayed the same? Yes. Well, it depends what you mean by the cost of living, because in a sense, the cost of living. Yeah, right. So we have more. So you think about we have more resources to put at risk, so more resources will be destroyed. And in particular, we once we reach a certain level of wealth, we choose to expose ourselves to climate danger. So you think about a place like Miami, right? That has a lot of storms, a lot of issues there. But if you look at Miami in 1920 compared to 2020, it's a huge difference. There are these massive, almost you know, massive buildings there now, all this wealth there that wasn't there before. So of course, a, the same storm hitting Miami then versus now is going to do a lot more damage now. And yet, we're still better off, because back then, it would have really wiped you out, would have wiped out your savings. Now it's like, OK, we have insurance. We can rebuild. And so when you look at the data, there is not an increase in climate-related damages adjusted for inflation. But also, climate-related damages are largely a choice. Plus, that's partially rational, but also government um, like flood and storm insurance and stuff artificially incentivizes people to live in places like Louisiana, which you might, many people might not live in without these kinds of protections. So st the, the damages are interesting to look at. There's not a trend. The wildfires are the most interesting because out of all of the trends, they are, they are, they are specific places where it's clearly getting worse in terms of damage. Like if you look at California, Interestingly, it burned way more in the 1900s and the 1800s, I mean, the 1800s and earlier. So we don't have more absolute burning, but we have way more damage in the last couple of decades than we have in the past. But that's not a global trend. So it's, you see it in Australia to some extent. Uh, you see it in California, but it's not a global trend. So when we see a local trend, we shouldn't assume that it's a global factor, but rather look for local factors. And so California, the obvious thing that Newsom has only started to acknowledge is that we let a huge amount of fuel build up in the forest. And I think the leading cause of dangerous, out of control wildfires is huge amounts of fuel in the forest. So energy, this is, sounds stupid, but energy is very powerful. So if you let a whole bunch of dead debris build up, you don't clear it, you don't do controlled burns, it becomes almost like a bomb. And that is something that can become overwhelming. Like, because we need energy to do climate protection, but if we if we put energy against us, it's hard to counter. Just like if we explode a bomb, we don't have technologies that can really counter that very well. We can recover. So we're basically creating this firebomb in the forest. But you think about it just logically. We can do controlled burns. We can do logging. We can clear debris. We can, we, you know, we can cut swaths of land to divide things up so the fire doesn't get from one place to another. The ability to master wildfires is actually fairly straightforward. So there's no plausible scenario where wildfires uh, overtake the earth or something. Whereas you could, you could make up a scenario where sea levels rose so much where it would be a huge problem. Like if they rose several feet a decade, it would be a real issue. So there's nothing resembling that. But so that's, that's I wanted to address wildfires. OK. Uh, the, I might have to ask, the one you addressed earlier that I forgot to address is the I only addressed it briefly in the talk, is this idea that the individual companies have 
like I'm not accounting for the structural issues. So we have these entrenched fossil fuel industry and the alternatives are not getting as much investment, et cetera. And I address that briefly just by saying that because these alternatives have been around so long, it's implausible that it's these political, almost conspiratorial structural type things that I mentioned, a place like Japan that has no kind of structural incentive. They have a structural incentive to do uh, other things, but they're using coal. And so it's, I think if you look into the details, it's not actually what's happening. What's actually happening structurally is an inordinate favoritism toward solar and wind, the unreliable fuels. Look at Germany, a lot of Europe, the US, we're spending huge amounts of money and compromising in many cases the reliability of our grid, which is why we're having blackouts in California because of these favored sources of energy. So actually the world, most politicians wanna get off fossil fuels and many people in the corporate world do, many people in the financial world do, they just can't do it because there's nothing as close to as cost effective. So this is a case where yes, there are some abuses some places, but overwhelmingly abuses are for alternatives, particularly solar and wind. And there's huge abuses opposing nuclear that some people in the fossil fuel industry have been guilty of, but certainly the renewable industry is terrible, the anti-nuclear department. And then, I'm sorry, the last, I just wrote something I cannot read, something about a, oh, the distribution, thank you. Yeah, yeah, so I'm saying, this is another, so I'm saying like there are these billions of people, they need power, but if we use more fossil fuels, is it really gonna get to them? Or is it just gonna be like, I fly and are my alleged cronies fly in a private jet or something like that. So that's a legitimate uh, type of thing. Because there's a question of, well, why, why don't people have reliable low cost energy and low cost machine power in those places now? Because the technology exists. And to use one of your terms, it's a structural issue. But it's not primarily a structural issue that the people using energy have imposed. It's primarily a structural issue that has not been, quote, imposed in the poor parts of the world, which is they don't have, you could say broadly, very good governance, but I think the fundamental is they don't have freedom and rights uh, respected. And so that's, if you think about the places that have done any, anything resembling respect for property rights, allowing businesses to function, even China, which obviously is hugely anti-freedom components, but has led in, but has had enough of a right structure where foreign people could invest, you see in those places, different places in Asia, what happens is, is those people do get more and more energy because what happens is if there's you know, hard working, albeit low scale labor, people can, it makes sense for people to invest in machine power to make them more productive. Some of that goes to the company, some of that goes to them. They get wealthier, they free up more time, they have more skill. It's this, it becomes this virtuous circle where they go from a low productivity state to a high productivity state. And that will happen as long as the countries have policies that are conducive to that. And you look at China and India, I mean, you have huge life expectancies there as they've been using more and more fossil fuels. That didn't require any kind of international charity or anything like that, but it just required certain political legal frameworks. So that's, in a sense, that's the ultimate limiting factor. And that will continue to improve some places, but it's something we also have to advocate for as well. So when I say, and I, and I, I, I should mention this more in my talk. I didn't mention this at all, actually, so I should mention it. In, I should have mentioned it today, where it's not that supporting the freedom to use energy is sufficient to empower the world, but it's absolutely necessary. 
And in some places around the world, it is sufficient because they are enough heading in the right direction that they will get empowered. And absolutely, there are forces in the modern environmental movement that are opposing it. You take places in Africa, for example, where fossil fuels are opposed. Uh, loans are, are tied to not being pro-fossil fuels. Sometimes loans are tied to opposing hydro, like building dams in places like Congo. Like that is evil, in my view, to oppose this kind of development. But the modern environmental movement is doing that left and right. So part of it is if we, yes, we need to leave people free. Yes, we should encourage better reforms, but we should absolutely do no harm. And right now we're doing a lot of harm by opposing fossil fuels, nuclear, and hydro in the poorest parts of the world. All right, great questions. Thank you. Uh, yeah, am I going to have access to this recording? Yeah. Okay, good. You mean before it goes up? No, just, is it gonna, it's going to be public, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, good. Um, okay, yeah. Oh, and could I get some water at yeah, some point I'll on this? What, are you like outnumbered or something in this class? I don't know. I'm actually from New York City, and then New York City is next to Good. I have two things. Just like one comment regarding this, and then I want to talk about like nuclear um, okay. power. So one thing, I think um, the claim that like famines in, um, in Yemen and Somalia and um, like Sub-Saharan Africa and like the global south, I think that's it's bold to blame that on like the fossil fuel allocation in those countries. Just and. And I agree. So and I think the, the premise that famine isn't included in those climate-related deaths is because those are mostly, like, inherent to, like, their state effectiveness. And, like, the... That's not Okay, yeah, we can talk about that later. But um, anyway, the question is, like, I, um, why do you believe that, like... I feel like, correct me if I'm wrong, but France is, like, relatively, like, the leading um, uh, user of nuclear power. Uh-huh. Right? And then Germany is, like, the opposite, more or less. Well, they're well, moving recently, away from Recently, it. yeah. Yeah. Do you mind like elaborating on why those structural differences are there? Is it because of like the fear of international nuclear pro- proliferation, or just because of like the harms associated with radioactivity? Yeah, just I just want to make sure I understand. So is it is the question like is an example of the question why does France nu- use nuclear and Germany doesn't, or why is yeah, nuclear so, so opposed? And so I mean, you look at the U.S. too, like the U.S. and Germany. Is the reason that like we don't we criminalize nuclear energy because of its association with nuclear? proliferation in general, or uh-huh. is it because of this um, like radioactive waste association? Oh, I see. Okay. Well, so first of all, the U.S. still, I think this is still true. We produce more nuclear energy than anyone in the world, including France, but relatively speaking, France has the highest percentage of electricity. I think Sweden is second, although even France is starting to move away from it, um, interestingly. So, but nevertheless, there, so there's a massive global opposition to nuclear and it's really important that it seemingly paradoxically parallels a massive increase in concern about co2 emissions again this is the only source of reliable electricity that we know can scale around the world hydro is great but it can't scale everywhere you need certain kinds of bodies of water nuclear you could theoretically use anywhere and it doesn't, have, it doesn't emit CO2, so why is there so much hostility toward it? And I think the reasons you mentioned are 
what we could call proximate causes, but not ultimate causes. So if you look at how the average citizen thinks of it, part of it is this issue of it's associated with nuclear proliferation, which itself is a pretty vague term. But I would say it's associated with nuclear bombs. And so that is a false, that is a, it's not just a false association, it's, an, it's a provably false association. So some, some things in the realm of science, there are questions about, like there are questions about when you put more CO2 in the atmosphere, how much warming is gonna occur. Like there's a lot of uncertainty around that. The question of whether nuclear, whether a nuclear power plant can explode like a nuclear bomb, that is definitively known, it cannot. Uh, the same guy who had the comment of the golf ball, he had this, this thing I never forgot, which he said, in response to the question of what would happen if a terrorist blew up a nuclear power plant and created a nuclear explosion, he said that terrorist should receive a Nobel Prize because he would have discovered a law of physics that didn't exist. So basically you cannot, the nuclear material the level of what's called enrichment in a nuclear power plant cannot explode. You need a totally different setup for it to explode. So that's just a false thing. So there, that can't explain why the thought leaders of the culture spread that and allow that to spread because it's not something you could, you could honestly believe. And then the waste thing is also a very weird thing on its own, if you're from a safety perspective because nuclear is t it's a very small amount of matter for a lot of energy, so it generates the waste itself has a lot of energy, which there are some ways to use, but it's very small. So it's like, you know, you're stacking up oil drums, something like 100 foot high on a football field would be all the waste. And none of that waste is going into the air, which is a very nice thing if you can do it. So it's, it's a very small amount of waste, and we can just basically seal it in containers, and it, it's not causing harm. That's why we don't actually have these three-eyed fish like in The Simpsons, and people aren't dying from this stuff. So it's a huge non-problem. So it's, it's really interesting that the two problems with it are fundamentally non-problems and their respects in which nuclear is superior. It has the least danger and the least waste associated with it. So then there's this question of why are we opposed to nuclear? And a clue to it is to ask the question, why is the modern environmental movement largely opposed to hydro? Why is the Sierra Club in favor of, of shutting down dams? And if you look at that, they give a straightforward explanation that I think also applies to nuclear. What they'll say is, they'll often say, well, look, this dam is interfering with the swimming patterns of the salmon or something like that. And what that means, what they're saying in, in a, a broader version of that is it's impacting nature too much. Like the dam is impacting nature too much. But this is in the context where people are saying we need lower CO2 ways of generating energy. Otherwise, the world is going to end. And my favorite example is James Cameron. He made that movie Avatar, which is basically just a thinly veiled demonization of fossil fuels and climate catastrophe. And right after he made that, he went down to the Amazon and told them not to build the dam. So like, what's going on? What's going on is by his own standard, this dam is crucial for human life, but he's placing above human life the goal of not impacting nature. And I think this is, the, this is the other philosophical issue that's involved here that I didn't talk about explicitly, but it has to do with this question of what is your standard that you're using to evaluate different decisions? So my standard I mentioned is human flourishing. But you could ask, well, what's the other standard? Doesn't everyone believe in human flourishing? The answer is definitely not. Almost nobody believes in it consistently. You can see this like in the world of animal testing. 
Many people who know that animal testing in many cases has huge benefits to human beings in terms of medical research still oppose it because they think the su supposed rights of animals are on par with or greater than the rights of humans. So it's placing the lives of animals equal to or above the lives of humans. So that's not human flourishing because you're willing to sacrifice human flourishing, including medical cures, for the sake of animals. And it's the same thing is going on, I think, in an even worse way with the modern environmental movement where they value unimpacted nature above human flourishing. So you look at they value an unimpacted river over having energy and limiting CO2 emissions. And if the key thing, I think, is that the modern environmental movement, it's not about a good environment for human beings. It's about an environment or a planet that's unimpacted by human beings. And so I think of it not as the environmental movement, but as the anti-human impact movement. And if you get the idea that it's against human impact and limiting or minimizing human impact is its top value, it makes sense out of everything. Because it makes sense, well, why are you against why are you against um, hydro? Well, it has too much impact. Why are you against nuclear? Well, it's, it has too fundamental an impact. We're playing God, we're splitting the atom, we're creating a new type of waste. Even though it's not very dangerous, it's gonna be around for a million years and it's wrong for us to impact the earth with a new substance like that. And even with climate change, why is the assumption that climate change is bad? Why do we just assume, oh, climate change, that must be bad? Because we have this idea it's intrinsically wrong for us to impact or change things. Whereas on a human flourishing approach, it's good to change things if it's good for us. It's bad to change things if it's bad for us. If it has more good than bad, then it's good. So like what's going on with nuclear is the, the modern anti-impact movement views it as immoral to impact the earth. And that's what's guiding them. And, and to connect that to that, what I said, the delicate nurture premise, the delicate nurture premise, you could think of it as a religion, like it's an anti, really anti-impact religion in a lot of ways. So the, the core commandment is thou shalt not impact the earth. And then the idea is if we do impact the earth by spreading the mythology that earth is a delicate nurturer, it gives us this idea that we're gonna go to hell. So you know, it's like standard narrative in a lot of religions that like if you violate the commandments, you're gonna go to a hell. Well, it's basically if we violate the commandment, thou shalt not impact nature and the climate, we're gonna to go to global warming hell. And if you see the, the, his, the, just the assumption that global warming is gonna be something that we can't adapt to, even though that makes no sense if you look at any of the predictions and our adaptive abilities, it's because it's this religious quality. It's not a scientific view that nature is a delicate nurturer and that it's gonna overwhelm us. It's just a view that we did the wrong thing and we're gonna be punished. And so I think the, the anti-impact, and call it a framework or a religion, that explains, that's the only thing that can explain this seeming paradox of we're against nuclear, we spread lies about it, even though it's the only scalable form of energy that doesn't emit CO2. Really, really quickly, is there a reason that you um, switched to like the delicate nurturer from the like perfect planet premise? Is there just a reason with like the connotation there? Oh, you're, yeah, that's a good question. So sometimes I call this perfect planet premise and I, in the current version of the book I'm working on, it's, I, I use it some places. So yeah, so sometimes I call a delicate nurturer, what I call delicate nurturer premise, I call it the perfect planet premise. And one is, I'm using delicate nurturer more now because delicate nurture is more of a pseudo it's more of a scientific, it's more describing how the planet works, whereas perfect is describing the moral evaluation. 
So if, calling, if I say it's a perfect planet premise, they might not say, well, it's not exact, might not be perfect, but it's the best possible. So the reason is because I, I think it captures the kind of Lion King view we're, we're given, whereas if I say perfect planet premise, there's not really a visual there. Whereas if I say delicate nurture, you get this idea of oh, nature is nice and we get to play with the frogs and there's clean water everywhere, et cetera. to a, a point about at least nuclear. I know that you can't make a nuclear reactor blow up like a nuclear bomb, but what about for, I guess, the example of terrorists or just natural disaster like we've seen in Japan with uh, a nuclear reactor releasing radiation into the atmosphere? Well, yeah, but you can, you can release. So what, yeah, what can happen, so to say it doesn't explode, is not to say nothing can go wrong, but the thing that can go wrong, it's usually some form of, of meltdown. So it overheats and there's a release, but it's important that a meltdown is a slow release that you have a lot of time to deal with, which is a huge luxury. Basically any other form, excuse me, of energy that goes wrong, it's a near instantaneous uh, danger that has unpreventable death. So like a gas line explodes, you know, that's seconds, right? And it's just there. Even um, you know, even the, like the wind turbines sometimes catch fire and like go out of control or something. It's uh, our solar panels catching fire, those kinds of things. Like those are much more dramatic. Whereas nuclear power plant, if there is a real level of danger, you have a lot of time to respond. And so that affects the death rate. Um, what often happens though, is because there's such a demonization of radiation and it's this anti-impact idea, because really radiation is everywhere, but people have the idea, well, if it's man-made, it must be bad. What you actually do have deaths from is is excessive uh, or unnecessary evacuations, particularly of elderly people from areas. So what happens is mo like Three Mile Island, Fukushima, et cetera, um, I mean, th those didn't kill out anyone from radiation releases. You can theoretically have situations where th there's that kind of danger, but uh, it's, it's still like, in the scheme of things, much more minor than anything else that can happen. But you should, in something like Fukushima, I mean, you should look at was that power plant put in the best possible place, like if it's vulnerable to tsunamis? But this is a use-abuse issue. So it could be, oh, people cited nuclear power plants uh, in the wrong way. In the case of Chernobyl, they, they actually used a nuclear power plant that was like a half plant, half bomb that nobody ever tried in the civilized and free world. So it's basically irrelevant to us. And even that didn't cause uh, that many deaths compared to any other technology. So there are definitely hazards to it. And as this guy, I, I mentioned, I didn't say his name, Peter Beckman, his point, he has this great book called The Health Hazards of Not Going Nuclear, and it, he leads with the point, I'm not arguing that nuclear is safe, I'm arguing that it is the safest form of energy ever devised. So energy is not, it cannot be safe because energy is, you know, it's power. It's, it's, it's what produces power and power can go out of control. That's why we don't want to build up a huge amount of dead wood in the forests because then we release a lot of energy. So that is a concern, but it's definitely not a reason not to use nuclear only to manage it better. As we're looking, does anyone else have one? As we're going, um, as we're moving the mic, by the way, my fa a friend of mine uh, from high school, who's, I, I forget when he asked me this, but he's actually a really cool guy, became a successful investor, but he was just asking me, Alex, can you really support an, a nuclear power plant? Like, what if they build a nuclear power plant next to your house? Uh, and I said, well, I said, that would be totally fine with me. I'd be a lot more 
scared of the, the dangerous thing near my house, which is a street. And like that, that's, that's how I feel around nuclear. Like, yeah, that's, that's safe. And there's, there's good stats to the effect of like, if you're in a relationship, you get more radiation from your partner's body. Uh, I guess this is, an, I can tell you this joke. This is a, one of my favorite nuclear jokes. I think it was from Edward Teller. Was this legendary physicist who probably should have gotten a Nobel Prize, but he was associated with the H-bomb. I think this is, I think this is the line. Um, th the point was that, you know, if you sleep, t if, if you sleep next to your wife, uh, you'll get slightly less radiation than you would living next to a, a nuclear power plant. So he says, what is the lesson from this? He said, sleeping with one woman is okay, but sleeping with two women can be very, very dangerous. Actually, Alex, that makes sense because wasn't uh, the model for Dr. Strangelove Edward Teller? Have you ever seen yes. the movie? Yeah. I, I never got through it. They tried to show it to us in middle school, and I think I was distracted. Oh, uh, it's worth your time. Is it really? Yeah, yeah. It's hilarious. Um, so a couple of comments and then a couple of questions. So okay. one comment is simply that um, I think, too, sometimes all parties tend to underestimate the extent to which uh, we'll call them hydrocarbons or fossil fuels, are not just fuels, they're also feedstocks for plastics, which are absolutely necessary for all facets of modern life. So just look around this room, even though it's an old-fashioned room with lots of wood, there's plastic everywhere. Mm -hmm. And furthermore, go into any hospital and almost every surface, everything is plastic. Yeah. So I think it's fundamental to our health, but also it makes so many things cheap. And why is that important? It's important for the poor. So when it comes to affording the basics of life, the bottom of the Maslowian hierarchy, energy, cheap energy, to your point, is where it's at. But plastics, too, have a lot to do with that. Uh -huh. So um, I think it's just a point worth underscoring. So much of what you say really affects the poor, most of all, not just the global poor, but the poor in this country. Yeah, that's so I think when you're talking about the moral case, I think that's often the, the, the proportion of a poor person's budget that goes to these basics is much larger than a middle class person's. Yeah, I think those are both great points. I think this, well, the, the first one I think is really important, and it was actually the thing that initially got me excited about energy as I was learning about the history of oil, and I learned about what's called petroleum, what you can call petroleum products, basically synthetic materials made from oil, and it just... Like I learned that, like, oh my gosh, you know, my sleep number bed is made out of the same stuff as was in the BP oil spill, which I don't know if you guys remember, but this giant oil spill in the Gulf of Mexico related to BP. And you're like, wait, how does that black stuff become, like it can become a sleep number bed or it can become a bulletproof vest or it can become an artificial heart. Like it just blew my mind that we could do this. And the reason, why are we doing it with oil and natural gas? It's the same reason we're using from them for energy. It's the most cost-effective way to do it. It also takes a huge amount of energy, particularly natural gas, to produce those things at low cost. So that, that's an important point. Um, I usually just focus on the energy issue because there are people who are anti-hydrocarbon slash fossil fuels for energy who say, well, no, we should use them for the materials we shouldn't use them for energy. So that's an even bigger argument that we shouldn't use them for energy because we need to save them all for the materials, which I think is a fallacious argument. But um, particularly because you have basically an infinite amount of coal in the world and you could do that stuff with coal if you needed to. The, the poverty in America is a really important point and I need to stress that more. But in, uh, the flip side of that is thinking about, like even the poor in America 
are so rich relative to history. And I, I want to think of it in terms of this, these elements of human flourishing, how much time you have on Earth, how much control you have over your time, and then how much uh, and how many options you have that can be potentially fulfilling. Like I, my, I did not, I'm not, I wish I had a, I mean, I wish I had a story where like I grew up poor and I, I didn't grow up poor, I grew up kind of upper middle class. And so certainly not worried about food or anything like that. But my experiences, my somewhat experience with poverty were when I started my own business with very little money and had very little money, but also even in college where I was fortunate to go to Duke, but I ran out of money in my, uh, I'm not trying to get sympathy, you'll explain why I'm, I'll explain this in a second. But I ran out of my meal plan at Duke and I had basically no money. There's very little money. I didn't want to ask my parents for money because I wanted to be self-reliant. So I had to figure out like, how can I eat as cheaply as possible and survive? And so I just would have lentils and tuna. And I could eat for you know, less than $25 a week. And I was just thinking about this recently, like average American makes more than $25 an hour. But think about what that means. Today, even if you're relatively poor, with one hour of labor, you can produce your food for a week. And if you calculate it for water, it's like something like a few seconds to produce your drinking water. So think about that. That's what machine power does. It allows you to produce your food and water to a level where people in the past didn't even have in basically one hour a week, even if you're relatively low skill. Like in manual labor societies, that is completely unimaginable. So one, one way of thinking about it, I like, and this is in the new version of my book a lot more, I like thinking of a lot of things in terms of time, like how much, how good the world, like how, you could think of like how good life is, how good the world is in terms of how much time does it take you to get a given value or avoid a given threat. And today, like it takes very small amounts of time to get the basics and relatively small amounts of time to avoid a lot of threats. And then actually we spend a huge amount of time avoiding threats that could kill us, like diseases. That's why I spend a lot on healthcare. I think there are ways to spend less, but nevertheless, like it makes sense to spend money on life-saving drugs and treatments if they get you more time, particularly with all the opportunities we have. So yes, I agree. And uh, so one quick comment, one quick question. So the, the comment is that so much of this, I think, especially when it comes to waste, or even the materials themselves, relates to, to dose, right? So, and that's true of, I think, a lot of things in life. <laughs> and so there's like the icky factor. I think a lot of people think, well, oil, nuclear, bad because it's icky. Wood, animal dung, good because it's natural. And <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that, okay, well, continue, yeah. but I don't think, I think it's they don't think about what, well, they that's only possible. are taught to think about the processes. It's part of the bias is that we're only shown the quote icky details of the processes that are favored. Because if you saw the kid in Congo mining for cobalt for a solar panel, you wouldn't think of it as clean. Completely agree. And I, 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 what I'm communicating is simply I think a lot of folks don't think that way. And that's part of our challenge. Well, but that's, but that's, but that, so a lot of these things are ideally the educational system and the media, like you can think of those, I think of those as sort of combined as like our knowledge system. That's what tells us what's true. You know, what are the, what are the true important things in the world? Like we get those from schools, we get them from media, and they're supposed to synthesize everything that all the experts figure out and communicate it to us. And I think the whole system is maybe not essentially a failure, but hugely uh, a failure. 
and, and an ener energy is a perfect example of how. So the knowledge system totally fails on energy. We don't understand how valuable energy is. We don't understand the state of the alternatives. And part of that is we're given a very incomplete and negative view of the processes used in fossil fuels and nuclear, and a very incomplete and positive view of the positive view of the processes used in solar and wind. So it's just, but the energy industry, that's the kind of thing that it's not, that's not that hard to overcome. The energy industry could do a lot more and energy advocates could do a lot more. And if you, I don't know how many of you guys have seen this movie that Michael Moore backed Planet of the Humans, which was a, a mess and I did a two part review of it on YouTube, but it was a mess in some ways good in others, but what he did that was very effective is he showed the details of how the solar and wind sausage are made, and it alarmed a lot of people. So like, oh, I thought this was just magic. It involves this mining and all this space and stuff and all this burning of wood and then taking wood, like chopping down trees in the U.S., grinding them into pellets, shipping them by oil-powered cargo ship to Germany, building them in Germany, I mean, burning them in Germany, et cetera, et cetera. So, the, the issue of showing the truth about the different processes, both the processes and their results, that's something there's clearly an ability to make more vivid. Interestingly, the fossil fuel industry has historically been reticent to say that it's better at certain things than others. It tends to take a stance, oh, we don't want to be perceived as anti-solar and wind, which I think is crazy. If, if you're better than somebody at something, you need to say that. Otherwise, people will keep only looking at the negatives and not the positives. Yeah, so you've just um, mentioned inputs, and I'll shut up. But, um, but it's also true of outputs, right? So I think that sometimes, and you see this in places where windmills, for instance, have been installed, that people are very unhappy with the impact it's had on the landscape. Uh -huh. And then furthermore, solar panels, and this is my question, seem to have a disposal problem, which I think often goes unaddressed. Because there are, as I understand it, heavy metals contained within them, and they require yeah. maintenance. and. So forth. The same might also be true of wind turbines. Of course, we know about you know they're you know they're the killers of these birds, which is in itself a problem. But right. uh, but I think that disposal of the blades might be an issue. I could be wrong about that. But yeah. I think that the outputs sometimes don't get addressed. So I guess that's a question. Posed yeah. So the full pro right the full so you can think of the full processes as what is it you know what's what does it take to produce what is what's the output and then what does it take to dispose of it. I think the main point I want to emphasize is just that we should, there should be objective discussion of the full processes. But what we shouldn't do to solar and wind is do what is done to fossil fuels, which is just act like, oh, there's an issue here with disposal, therefore it's bad. And you could deal with batteries as well. Like batteries have huge disposal issues, but those are not unsolvable issues. But they're a big problem if you don't acknowledge them. Because what happens if you don't acknowledge them, if you act like, oh, wind turbine is renewable, it's just going to compost itself when it's done, then you haven't seriously dealt with disposal issues, or you haven't dealt with the fact that these things wear out rather quickly. Like this idea of it's not only free, it's forever, which Al Gore says, Robert F. Kennedy, like what, what is that? All these things wear out very easily. They're not, they're not renewable at all, right? It's all these quote, non-renewable. Uh, I don't think, the, renewable I think is the wrong way of thinking about things. Um, anyway, but I, I think the issue is just, we need to recognize the full process and then we need to have fair and equitable policies that hold different processes to the same standards. So like in safety, we shouldn't hold nuclear to 10,000 times higher standard than we hold fossil fuels. We shouldn't hold like, like a coal mine to different standards of decommissioning than we do a wind turbine. 
And, but I think ultimately, if we have property rights properly defined and we hold everyone accountable, there's no reason why we can't dispose of these things better. Or what will happen is the disposal cost will be so high that people won't engage in it. But I can't predict whether that's the case or not, and it could be they come up with innovations. So I just want to stress, like, I'm all for, I don't want to, I want to recognize the reality of things and encourage them to improve under a fair system, not demonize it as, oh, this is hopeless. But they should, I do believe, I did a, a, a podcast about this last week. I do believe in some form or another the grid is, needs to, the grid does not properly value reliable electricity, and it basically just, rewards people the same for producing reliable electricity and unreliable electricity, which makes absolutely no sense and is part of the reason why we have blackouts in California. Are you willing to take one or two more? Yeah, I, I'm, I'm willing. Okay. Um, I, I do want to preface it with one thing. Despite all my questions, I do believe that there is a case for fossil fuels in development and stuff, so I'm not fully anti-fossil fuels. I'm just, yeah, I wanted to preface that. Um, I think, okay, my first question then, in going to your wild nature hypothesis, you know how you, you kind of use this assumption that the earth in its uninhibited form is dangerous and people can't thrive and all of, well, the points you were making. Uh -huh. If that's the case, how do you explain like our current existence? Like wouldn't we have technically been wiped out by the earth if the earth uncontrolled by man is actually more powerful than us? Uh, good question. I thought you were also going to bring up hunter-gatherers, which is an interesting thing as well, because there are like claims, you know, hunter-gatherers had more free time and stuff. So I'll, I'll address both what you asked and what you might ask. So I, I want to be very deliberate. I, what I said is the earth is not conducive to human flourishing. And so that's, and, and particularly I, I stress the flourishing of the average person. So when I showed those graphs, those hockey sticks, you know, it's the average person who's living at a very low level. But there are certain people, so there are a couple of dimensions of this, but there were, if you go back 1,000 years ago, there's, or 500 years ago, let's say, there are certain people who were living at a level that would sort of resemble flourishing. Like certain people did not have to worry about food usually or water easily. And in fact, and they could have very sturdy buildings or relatively sturdy buildings, even in some cases, they could have like ice brought to them to cool them off in the summer, and, and they, could, they could have a certain kind of air conditioning, and they would have enough heating. Now, who had that? What kinds of people had that? Yeah. King or queen. I mean, you could think of it as powerful people, right? But what does it mean to be powerful? It means that you're harnessing a lot of energy. But what are you doing? Instead of using machines as machines, you're using humans as machines. And that's so much of what goes on. Like, why is slavery universal throughout history? And why is it not universal now? A huge thing is machine power. And not just slavery, but more broadly, like conquest and servitude. Because if, if you're limited by manual labor, yeah, you can get animals to do some stuff, but basically what you try to do is you try to, get, you try to force other humans to do work for you so you can live at any kind of decent level. And so now we consider that immoral, but that used to be considered normal uh, everywhere because otherwise you're just going to live this precarious existence. And so the point is the earth in its unimpacted state 
human flourishing is impossible for the average person, but it's, it's possible for a limited group of exploiters. And the reason we're still here is it's possible enough for the continuation of the species. So I distinguish between enough survival and reproduction for the continuation of the species versus enough survival and uh, versus enough production for the average human being to survive a long time, to have a lot of control of their life, and to um, have a, you know, a lot of options. Now, hunter-gatherers are kind of an interesting thing that people bring up, because you'll like, look at certain societies and you'll see, oh, well, like, it looks like they had you know, six hours a day of leisure time. Like they do a hunt in the morning and gather some berries, and they seem to be able to live on that. And so there are a bunch of things to say about this. And one thing is, obviously, the precariousness of their life was very high. This way of life lends itself toward war. But there is something in terms of they, I mean, some people had more leisure opportunity, and that all things be equal is good. But for our purposes, the main thing with that is we have population levels now where that kind of life is completely impossible. Now, somebody could say, oh, I wish there were still just a million people on the planet or whatever. But OK, but do you really wish that? Because there's 8 billion now. So the only way to get to that is genocide. So there's no, on the Earth, it, like with a certain limited human population, we can sort of live like animals, which is a, a lot of how hunter-gatherer life is. Like we can sort of just take what nature produces if we're willing to roam around a lot and war with some other people. But nature doesn't produce enough for even a billion people to flourish, let alone 8 billion. So that, what we can do is, though, if we say, wow, that hunter-gatherer looks like it was fun to have five hours of free time a day, guess what? We can do that ourselves. Now, people might not choose to do that, but they have the choice. So there's a lot of things you can say about modern society where we might not use the opportunity of the modern empowered world well enough. Like, oh, maybe we eat too much junk food, or maybe you know, or, um, we waste our time. You can make that case to somebody, but you still want to live in an empowered world. You just want to make better use of it. You don't want to live in, a, in an impossible hunter-gatherer society or a possible poor society. Just th then to respond to that, don't you then see this whole idea, though? Like, you're assuming that as humans, then we deserve to be on Earth, and it's our duty to make the Earth better. And like, then this enters into the question of the Earth was technically here before us. So like, why should like why are we entitled this right to then like destroy it and like you're asking like don't we rather live in a world with eight billion people what if the world like what if the earth in its of itself is saying to us like maybe we actually should have never become like eight billion people like this is a whole other sort of tangent no no conversation, this is a big, this, it's a big one and actually it's an aspect of your first question i didn't answer so i'm glad you brought it up but let me just ask you like what do you take it as the earth what does it mean to say the earth is telling us we shouldn't have eight billion people and what would you prescribe if, it, if the Earth told you that, what would you do about it? See, I don't necessarily have an answer, but then I'm just thinking to like the Incas, the Mayans, who were the Incans and the Mayans. Like th these were thriving civilizations with their own sorts of like technological advances and stuff. And I'm wondering, like, did we? I don't know, but did we make a mistake in becoming this industrialized and in becoming this developed? Like. That, I, I don't, that's why I'm asking. I, I don't know. But I think it's, it's a valuable claim because like, we just assume that like, this, is, this constant growth and stuff is good, but I, I don't know that it is, and I don't know. Maybe it's not the case. Well, yeah, and just to add to that, I mean, it's part of what you're suggesting that, because as you say, Alex, um, a lot of people in the modern world, especially given just the degree of abundance and comforts and distractions, waste their time in kind of superficial ways. 
Maybe well, part I'm of saying that's an ac that's an accusation. I, I wouldn't put that as a blanket. Oh, okay. Thing myself. Okay. But well, well so just to finish, because I think maybe part of what you're getting at is that there is this view that a lot hold. I'm somewhat sympathetic to some version of this view that before there were all these distractions and comforts, there were actually positive spiritual effects on human beings. Like, um, well, yeah, just like, you know, like when there's more deprivation, when life is harder, but there's also less possibility for just cheap, easy distraction, like mm -hmm. the effects on human beings might be positive or something like, I mean, I think it's part of what you're getting at. So I'm just if you could like maybe factor that into your response. Yeah, so interesting. Okay, now let me just make sure I remember. Okay, because I remember yours totally now, but I, now I forgot. Well, you can, you can wait, wait, okay. Hold on, just give me 15 seconds to reconstruct it. So there's the. Uh... Oh, well, you mentioned like the Incans and. The... So I think there are two. There are two questions. One is is it morally right to value human flourishing? And then there's a question of is, call it industrial civilization or machine labor civilization, like is that actually human flourishing? Is there some way in which it's not, which relates to what you're saying. Right, but, I wanna, so there, but these are two issues, right? Because one is, is this a value? And then the second is an interpretation uh, of the value. And so is it a value? I think yes, but it is important that it is, I think there is a, an argument for this, but there is in a sense, it's a plausible objection to what I'm saying, sort of the, although I don't think it could really be defended, to say, I do not value human life. Like, I value unimpacted nature above human life, and therefore I think the planet should be dehumanized. That is, human beings should be reduced in numbers and impact to the point where they have virtually no impact on the rest of nature. Like, that is a coherent view. Um, and, but it, it is, but then you, it is, a, the reason I ask you what would you do about it is like that is a view that necessarily means like genocide of the entire world. Or colonizing Well, but then you would have the same, no, because that, that's clever, but you would have this same morality that said it's wrong to do it to the other planet. Correct, but like because, there's a reason people are looking at other planets. It's almost, I, I agree the same thing will happen, but it's almost implying then like, oh, we definitely messed up here in a way. I, I, but, but the messing up, but the messing up, see the issue is the messing up is our very existence to any level of success. Like the only existence that's acceptable if unimpacted nature is a standard is human beings living as like a, a poorly functioning version of other animals or just sort of scrounging for things. Like, you look at other animals, there's no such thing with other animals as most members of the species survive and live to a long age. Like, infant mortality we think of as a, as a tragedy because we're on a human flourishing standard. But you just look at other species, like individual members get wiped out all the time. That's just the normal thing. So human flourishing means something that, it means having a massive impact on the rest of nature. And so there is this question, of do you value that? And if you value that, you have to value impact. Now, it's it should be intelligent impact. It shouldn't be impact that's self-destructive. But I think one way to think of it is being on a human flourishing standard means you have the most pro-human relationship pos uh, possible with the rest of nature. 
So it's not that you hate the rest of nature, that you want to turn it into a parking lot, because that, that wouldn't actually be good for you for all a parking lot. You need some of it to be a parking lot, and certain species are going to be in opposition to you, so you need to get rid of them, at least in certain places. Like, you don't want a bear in your backyard, you don't want malarial mosquitoes flying around, but it's all based on a human flourishing standard. And what I find is when I talk to people about this issue, like, when it comes down to it, almost everyone is, when I really lay the choices out, almost everyone is ultimately on a human flourishing standard. Usually what happens is they, because they believe the delicate nurturer premise to some degree, they think that our impact has to be self-destructive. But the more I explain, no, human beings are producers. We can produce more resources. We can make the earth cleaner. That doesn't have to stop. There's no limit to that. Once they get that human beings can impact the earth in a way that makes it better and better, including things like, you know, life and natural, other life and natural beauty, like we can have a better and better planet from every perspective, every related human perspective, then most people are pro-human flourishing. But it is possible for somebody to say in a, and I think it's the only logical thing that a human, that any species who can think, and we're the only one who can, but any species who could identify their implicit moral code, like their goal would be they individually and their species does well. Like the lion's implicit moral code is lion flourishing. And it should be. But I'm a human and it should be human flourishing. And so I think that's the logic of it. And it, um, like philosophically, you know, different, there are different views of this. Uh, but I'm, I'm a big fan of objectivist philosophy, which is Ayn Rand. And so she has an argument in her work about like why morality, there, there's no, without the need to benefit human life and human flourishing, there is no such thing as morality. Like morality comes from the need Morality is like the instruction manual for human life, so it's incoherent to talk about morality in a way that is anti-human life, just like it would be you know, irrational to talk about like public speaking principles if you didn't want to be good at public speaking. But, but you, okay, so I think you were saying that when you press people and lay out the choices, they tend to actually come over to your side. And, yeah. Um, but you also think, I think, that deep down what's driving a lot of environmentalists is a kind of anti-human life premise, correct? Yes. Like, you think that's actually what's going on deep down. Yeah, that's a really good... Well, and, and, it, well, and sorry, and so um, if that's true, I just wanted to note, like, Hank, Hank and Jay, I don't know if you guys are thinking of Oswald Spengler right now. Yeah, but, like, uh, one, of our, one of our most recent speakers... Uh, John David Ebert, he gave a talk about Oswald Spengler. Have you heard about it? It doesn't matter. He's like a, a, a German historian, but he argues that civilization moves in cycles. And he says, you know, like every civilization has its springtime period when like religious, spiritual, artistic life is very vibrant. And then it uh -huh. kind of ossifies and just becomes political, economic, rationalistic, military uh -huh. and, and kind of declines. So all civilizations rise and decline. He says one symptom of a declining civilization is when people start to question the value of human life, manifested by, or um, as illustrated by things like abortion, antinatalism, and I mean, I just think like your critique of the environmentalist movement very much, very much fits within the Spenglerian view. Like Western civilization is in decline. People are beginning to doubt the value of human life. They're having fewer, fewer children. They're saying things like, "We don't want to bring children into the world." They're saying like, "Humans maybe shouldn't even exist at all." <laughs> um, well, yeah, I, I wouldn't. This is a big topic. I would not. I don't put those positions together. So, like, I I think 
uh, at least most abortion should be legal. And so that's a whole, I mean, that's not what I'm here to talk about, but like I believe that that's actually the pro-human position, which obviously people will disagree with, but we can talk about that sometime. But the, so I mean, a lot of times you, ha a lot of times with these, like they're just, with different thinkers, like their ways of, their frameworks for thinking can be so divergent in different ways. So I think this guy's conception of human life is different. So I, I think of it as, let's, let me talk about the environmental movement. So what's going on there? Because it seems almost like a contradiction because I'm saying that, well, but I said most people when pressed actually value human flourishing. Like they'll actually choose that in part just because they're a human and they want to flourish. If there's a way, another way to put it is, if there's a way for human beings to flourish in harmony with one another and with the values that we think of the planet as having, including like you know beautiful places and clean air and clean water and all kinds of cool species, like if that's possible and that's all we can have at all, which I'm arguing, then people want that. Um, but there are some people I think who do not, actually want that and there's a question of why is that the case and i think but it's i mentioned the animal rights thing like there are people who know very clearly that not doing animal testing will be bad for humans but they're still against it and so there's a question of well, why would you be against your own species there's a kind of logic there and the answer one big answer can be um if you feel like being against your own species will place you above members of your species that you envy. So this is a, and I'm a big Ayn Rand fan, this is, you read Atlas Shrugged, this is a big theme in that, but like, if you, just think of the hatred of, like, the, the idea of we hate the 1% in our society. Like that as a popular thing to say, oh, I hate the 1%. The, if you look at what the 1% do, at least a lot of them, it included people like Steve Jobs, like people who make our lives way better. So how could you say in blanket, I hate the 1%? You could say, I hate the unearned 1%, but why do you say hate the 1%? Well, in that case, I think people who feel bad about themselves, who are not happy with what they're accomplishing in life, it's a, it's a very psychologically appealing view to say, hey, you know, those people who are succeeding, they're actually bad and you're actually good because they're in the 1% and you're a part of the oppressed masses. And if you think of this with the anti-human impact thing, it's a similar thing. If you could say like, I'm not very happy with my life, but you know all those people who are really successful and have money can do all these kinds of things and get all these conventional rewards, they're actually the bad people. They're destroying the earth. They're having too big an impact. So I can look down on them and make myself feel good. So I think a lot of reasons why anti-human ideas it, like ideas that are anti-human in general appeal to specific humans is because they elevate specific humans over the other humans that they envy or resent. So that I think is a big, so there's this connection between philosophy and psychology where often the people who come up with really bad ideas and the people who embrace them have an element of, I don't feel good about myself, this is gonna elevate me above others. So in that sense, they're doing it, quote, selfishly, but it's, it's not going to make them happy, and it's certainly going to make others miserable. I'm sorry if this pisses people off, but it's kind of analogous to white progressives saying really bad things about white people. You know, like humans saying really bad thing about th bad things about humans. Yeah. Or humans taking a negative right, view. Of right. Right. So the idea in order to elevate themselves. Over yeah, yeah. Human, I think there, there's like, a but sort of like the idea that I mean, this is 
you know, I want to take this more with a grain of salt because I, I want to focus on energy stuff just because that's where I have expertise. But I mean, I think I have expertise about this other thing, but you have no reason to think I have expertise about this other thing. Like, if somebody particularly is holding the view that, like, every person of a certain race, so in this case, like, Caucasian descent, like, you are racist, not like, not in the sense of, like, oh, you're aware of race in a way we wish we weren't given, like, but no, like, you're racist in, like, a, in a really bad way. That can, people who say that, like, I forget her name, but the author of Robin, whatever, um, D'Angelo, like, that, I've only seen her talk a little bit, so I haven't read her book, but I've studied this stuff quite a bit in general. Like, that's a kind of, that's a position where, yeah, she's saying, yeah, I'm a racist, but like, I'm the most woke racist in the world, right? Because I'm, I know that I'm a racist and you don't, and so I'm superior to you. And so that is a kind of superior. I don't, by the way, I don't like the appropriation of the, the word progressive for anti-individualist or anti-freedom causes. So I consider myself a, a genuine progressive and that I want human progress, which I think is a pro-freedom position. There's this idea of conservative versus progressive, which I think both are bad terms. Like conservative means it's, progressive is, if you take liberal or progressive to mean it's good because it's new, that doesn't make any sense because new things could be good or they could be bad. But it's a hell of a lot better than things are good because they're old. Like, things are good because they're true. And in America, conservative has a lot of good things to it because America has so much that's uniquely good to it. So in a sense, you, you want to conserve America. But the American founders were the ultimate progressives. They were radicals. So I, I think of it as like, so if I had to choose, I would be a progressive. But in the sense of I, always, I want to take the best ideas and move forward, not I just want to conserve whatever happens to exist. Oh yeah, and if you have your cards, you can just leave them there. Or... Yeah. No one should feel pressure to stay, but no one should feel pressure to leave. <laughs> I'm uh, We're gonna get down to that number of three. Thanks a lot. I'm curious uh, to hear your thoughts on companies like Tesla, who are trying to make electric—not electric energy, but uh, you know, electric cars—more readily available yeah. to people. Well. So electric cars, you call them battery cars because you can do electricity with fossil fuels and you can do electricity with hydrogen. But these battery cars are battery electric cars. So it's, it's all about what's, um, I mentioned this a long time earlier, but like it's all about cost effectiveness. So like what's the value it provides at what cost? What's particularly exciting about battery cars um, that have no, they have emissions in the process, but they don't have emissions when they're driving. I mean, a little heat, but they don't have, but the emissions come from the power plants that are powering them. But one thing that's exciting about that is the most exciting application of that, I think, is the tunnels, which Elon Musk is interested in, which is, to me, my favorite idea. Like, he has this boring company. Like, if you could do this cost effectively, which is questionable, but I hope you can, like, if you could bore these tunnels underground, then you could have really rapid car transport but those tunnels are much more conducive to something that doesn't have tailpipe emissions than something that does, because you don't have to have the same ventilation issues. So that would be an example. So there's certain contexts in which battery vehicles, oh, you mean already, there, there are certain contexts in which they are better 
and certain contexts in which they are worse in terms of most of them don't have that much range. But the main thing is just the cost benefit of it. So right now, for most people, a battery vehicle is not cost effective. But if they become more cost effective, that's, that's great. And, it's, and what you see is it has to do with this issue of the concentration of the energy. So the batteries are becoming more concentrated, but they're nothing near oil. So that matters most the larger thing you're trying to move. So for like a cargo ship, you're not going to run that on a bunch of Tesla batteries. But a small vehicle or even a mid-sized vehicle, uh, you might. And that might improve over time. Like a plane, you're not going to run on Tesla batteries. So I think the key is that it's not that we should be intrinsically in favor of oil-powered vehicles, but we should be in favor of the most cost-effective. We should be very wary of efforts to mandate these things when they're not cost-effective. And in particular, because to mandate a scale that they've never existed on. Because these battery vehicles, like they're still very small percentage of the car market. So you think about if you mandate, oh, 100% of us has to use this in 15 years. Like Gavin Newsom in California just said, basically, we have to have zero emissions vehicles by 2035. Like, you don't know what it's going to be like to scale all that lithium production and cobalt production. You, it, that may make sense. It may not. And the, the most obvious example of this is look at what's happening to the electricity grid in America. It's becoming less reliable, particularly in California. Like, we don't have reliable electricity. And Newsom is saying, let's add a huge amount of electricity usage, particularly often that's needed at night to charge things when there's no solar. Like, this is a prescription for disaster. So we want the most cost-effective things, but that should be determined by competition and choice, not by some dictator saying, oh, I like the idea of everyone having an electric car. But it could be in 20 years, like, electric cars are dominant. And if they are and they earn it, that would be great. Um, do you have a, I guess, a preference for a certain type of fossil fuel? Because I, I believe some fossil fuels are uh, more environmentally friendly than others. At least I'm under the impression that natural gas is better for the environment than, say, oil. Well, I don't think it would be weird for me. If I had a preference for anything, it would be nuclear, because it's very elegant. It's kind of like the perfect form of energy. But it's really about what's cost effective, including when you fit in side effects. Because like, what, what I could say, oh, well, I prefer natural gas. Because if you have an unlimited accessible supply of natural gas, you can power a power plant cheaply. And it's very, it's cleaner. Like, it's at least easier to make clean because the raw material is pretty clean to start with, whereas coal requires a lot more purification because the material is a lot more messy, has a lot more impurities to start with. But do I like it more? Well, coal is much more significant right now in terms of alleviating the poverty of the poorest people in the world because coal is, gas is a gas, so it's harder to transport. You can compress it or even liquefy it, but that takes a bunch of resources. So it's almost always cheaper in places that don't have a lot of gas there. It's, at least right now, maybe you could build pipelines and change that. I'm all for pipelines, but coal is pretty compact. It's super easy to move, and it's cheap. So that may be the key thing for the poorest people in the world. So I like it in that respect. And so what the reason each of these is used in a very large quantity is because it has unique benefits to it for the people who are choosing to use it. Oil, I mean, oil, if I had to choose, it would be oil. 
because oil is so con like there are unique things in the world that exist that nothing but oil can do and that's not true of anything else like any you could if you had enough oil you could run every single thing in the world on oil that's why it's the most ex I mean, that's why of the fossil fuels is the most expensive and it's why we use it mostly for transportation because it's uniquely valuable there because if you need a fixed source of energy it doesn't matter that it's be super concentrated you could just burn coal or gas it doesn't have that big an advantage over oil all right well i think we set a record for question for low number of people and high number of questions so that's that's a credit they were, they they're all great and um so yeah, thanks to you for, for putting this on and for having such a, a thoughtful, inquisitive uh, group of students. And yeah, thanks everyone for asking questions and for challenging me and for the uh, six, seven, eight of you who have stayed along, nine. And Stella. Let's, let's thank Alex. All right, thank you very much. All right, I hope you enjoyed that. Q&A. Uh, as I was going through that Q&A and thinking about it afterward, I was thinking, oh my gosh, it was a year ago that I debated Robert F. Kennedy Jr. And I feel like I knew nothing then uh, compared to what I know now. So I always like that, uh, that kind of growth. And one big reason for that, probably the biggest reason, is that I've been working on a book, as many of you know, or a new version of Moral Case for Fossil Fuels. I hope to have a big announcement about that in the next several weeks. Uh, but nothing about that for now, except that just the practice of really going in depth on these issues, thinking about them more, getting more data, practicing, explaining them better, it just helps so much. And I particularly wanna thank the accelerators who have supported us, particularly in the last six or seven months, uh, because they, those accelerator contributions, they go directly to our research and development efforts and to marketing efforts. But in this case, it's been mostly research and development. And I have a lot of really smart, talented people helping me uh, with the book and developing my thinking that it would be very hard to do without the accelerators. So thank you for those of you who've supported the program. If you wanna support it going forward, go to industrialprogress.com accelerate. All right, let's close it out. The usual, if you have any questions, comments, love mail or hate mail, email me at alex at alexepstein.com to get on the mailing list to get weekly updates. Go to alexepsteinlist.com. Of course, you can follow me on all of the usual social media channels. And I shouldn't forget, make sure to share energytalkingpoints.com. Uh, Politicians have been focused on almost everything besides energy, but we saw in the vice presidential debate, energy issues uh, came up. I've heard there are rumors that, they, uh, that at least one side was familiar with energytalkingpoints.com and made some use of it. I hope all candidates from all parties uh, try to make use of it, but it just goes to show this is a really big issue. And the more we share these talking points, the better. I also just got a note, from, I put this in my newsletter this week, uh, from a high school teacher who was using them to inform his students in, I believe it was an AP bio class. And uh, they sent me a nice note and it seemed like they had had a debate based on the talking points or the talking points were one resource and the team that used the talking points won the debate. So just on any level from the VP debates to uh, high school AP bio, I think energytalkingpoints.com can be a very valuable resource. All right, that is it for this week. Uh, next week, I already know who the guest is because I already interviewed him. 
Uh, it's a really interesting uh, uh, young up and coming free market intellectual who in the last couple of years has been getting into the moral case for fossil fuels has been influenced by my work and doing some cool work of his own. So look forward to that. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.